Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Before the service, uh, Marie D'Angelo, she said, I, I, I'm seeing different things on the screen. She says, is it Psalms 100 is it, is, or is it Genesis 12? I said, it's none of that. It's Psalms, it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, Romans 9, Romans 9. I'm going to try to bring you a sermon this morning that I'm, I was such a quandary about it. I came up here last night and gave it a practice run through and it took me 49 minutes to get through it last night. And so uh, and then I read, I read over it, you know, and thought about how long it's going to take me and that took me about an hour and 10 minutes. So hopefully I can pull it off in about 33. <laughs> this is what I'm aiming for. Romans chapter 9 is such, a, such an incredible chapter. In Romans chapter 8... It ends with this statement of God's everlasting love for us. How in verses 37 through 39 of chapter 8. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God for us is an everlasting love. It's a love that cannot be ended. It cannot be changed. It cannot be thwarted. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ is the key statement. Outside of Christ Jesus, God is one day going to cast you into a place called hell if you are outside of Christ Jesus. Now, there's only one way to think about this, in my opinion. Is God does not put people he loves in hell. It has, it has to stop. That is an unloving action. It's an unloving action. I've had the misfortune in my ministry many times to talk to, talk to ladies who have been married to dudes who knock them around and who abuse them. Or to kids who get knocked around by their, by their parents. Or, and they say, oh, and they love me. <laughs> I don't think that's love. It doesn't, it doesn't meet any of the standards for love in Scripture. It doesn't meet any, any standard of love that I can even comprehend. So this love of God that's everlasting is a love for people that are in Christ. In Christ. This is the great promise. It's an everlasting love. When did the love of God for us begin? Well, we, we know it has to begin before the, before the world was made because in John 3, 16, John 3.16 says, For God so the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And when did, when did Christ begin to be given for us? When did Christ begin? When was the offering of Christ began? When was the whole idea of redemption begun? begun? It began before the world was made. It began before creation. There's an, before we were ever made, God had already decided that Jesus is going to be the one who's going to go to the cross and die for our sins. So it began a long time ago. And for those who are in Christ... It'll never end. Now let's take a reading here. Romans chapter 9. I have down here to go all the way to verse 29, but I really doubt we're going to make it that far. So uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh, that's Israel, the Jewish people. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has, has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is the promise said, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with and has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not, had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. We trust that God will add his blessing to his, to his word. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul returns to the, the Jewish question. Now, he's mentioned the Jews to us in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And in each statement about the Jewish people, he says the Jews, just because they were the chosen covenant people, they are not going to get into heaven. They're not going to be redeemed, justified, or enter into the heavenly kingdom just because they're Jews. Just because they were born into a particular family, that's not going to get them in. That's not enough. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, the apostle says, It's not the circumcision of the flesh that makes you a Jew. 
It's the circumcision of a heart that makes you a Jew. And so the apostle is telling us, and I'll get to this in a minute, I hope, is that there are basically two Israels. Two Israels. How many Israels? Two Israels. There is a, a fleshly or physical ethnic Israel. And then there is a spiritual Israel, or what I call a true Israel. There are a people of God of the flesh who are descendants of Abraham, and there are a people of God of faith who belong to Abraham. And these are the true promised seed. This is the, the true Israel of God. Now, usually when people approach Romans 9, 10, and 11, here's a, a handy little, little outline for you, and you can write it down if you like. But chapter 9 talks about Israel's past, talks about them in the past. Chapter 10 talks about their present, the status they're in now. They're not enemies of Gentiles. They're because of the gospel, there are brothers and sisters in Christ if they believe. And then in chapter 11, talks about the future of Israel. So you have chapter 9, Israel's past. Chapter 10, their present. And chapter 11, their future. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, you may have a heading in chapter 9 that says God's sovereign choice. Mine is right at the top of chapter 9. In my NIV, it's, it's right above verse 6. Does anybody have that heading in their Bible, paragraph heading, God's sovereign choice? Anybody have that? Maybe, maybe if you have an NIV, it might, you might have God's, you may have the apostles' anguish or Paul's anguish over Israel too. But that's kind of a, an accepted way of looking at chapter 9. Now, when you come to this word choice, this is an interesting word, and then you see the word sovereign, that's also an interesting word, because it means this is a choice that God has made within his rights. God has the right to do things that others don't have. Now, if you come to my house, guess who maketh the rules? Well, Valerie makes the rules. Right? That's why the towels get hung up in certain places and the dishes get put in certain cabinets because she makes the rules. And so if you come to our house, you conform to the rules. And, you know, and, and I, in Michigan, there's kind of a universal household rule that I'm always breaking. I always forget about it. And we went to somebody's house uh, this, this week. Early in the week, a home we'd never been to before, Valerie and I. And we walk in, we say, hey. And they say, come on in. We say, hello, hello, hello. We walk, we walk through the living room. We sit down in the, the places they told us to sit. And then uh, Valerie, she says, oh, we didn't take off our shoes. Now, how many of you guys take off your shoes right as you get in the house? Now, see, that's most, that's most people. We don't, in, in Oklahoma, we didn't do that. We tried to do it to save our carpet. But after a while, we thought, hey, we're too old to be tying them shoes all the time. <laughs> And so, but there's kind of a custom of, of slipping off the shoes. And, you know, every, every, every place has these rules. And God is the sovereign, so he, has, he makes choices within his rights, within his position. And all through the Old Testament, you see this. You see God choosing, making choices, selecting people, selecting nations to be his people. If you begin at the beginning of the Bible, you'll see that, that God... In Genesis chapter 5 and 6, there was only one guy in his family who got on the ark, and that was Noah. Of all the people of the earth that God spoke to, he only spoke to one dude and said, build an ark. And he said, Noah, build the ark. Noah builds the ark, and eight people got on it. Sometimes you'll hear people say that the ark was so big because it could have held so many more people. I don't think that that's, I don't think that's directly drawn from Scripture. Then in, in the life of Abraham, you see God choosing Abraham. Of all the people of the world, he could have had follow him. He said to one guy, the son of an idolater, follow me. And he followed him. My friend from England, he's, he, talk, he, 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 uh, he talks about this in the sense of God's allocation principle, his principle of allocation. 
is that God chose one man, one people to be his people. And then he said, and God does this throughout the scripture. In the law, in the Old Testament, how much of your money did God say belongs to him? 10%, right? He says, this is the tithe. It's the Lord's. And then you have seven days of the week to live. How many days did God claim as his own? He just claims one. So all through the scripture, you see this principle of allocation. God allocating a portion of a whole for himself. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 9. So in chapter 9, the apostle explains that God has chosen. He is not currently choosing, but God has already chosen who will be saved, who will become his people, and he has done this without any regard for personal merit, for personal merit. Now let's look at this chapter under these following headings. In verses 1 to 5, we have the apostle's anguish. The apostle Paul says something here. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He says, I even called the Holy Spirit to bear witness about this, that I am not lying. He says, I wish that I myself could be accursed so my people, the Jews, could be saved. He is saying, I wish I could go to hell so that they could go to heaven. I've read that many times, and I don't know that I could ever say that about anyone. I don't think I could say that about my own dear wife or my own children. But Paul says it about a whole group of people, about his own people. This anguish of heart. It's such a preposterous thing for him to say that he actually says... I swear to God, the Holy Spirit knows I'm being sincere here. So I I have difficulty with this, to to say this myself. So I think this must have been an, an apostolic gift, an apostolic kind of love. Because you think about what Paul has done in his ministry. This was written in 60 AD, roughly, the letter to the Romans. And so for 25 years, the Apostle Paul has been traveling the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel, and in every place he goes, what happens to him? He gets beat up, knocked around, lied about, pushed around. He got beat up and left for dead more than once in in, in his Corinthian letter. He describes all the things that he's gone through, shipwreck, famine, nakedness, three times beaten with rods. Dr. Ron Comfort used to say this about that, that they say that being beaten with rods just one time would render a man incapable of fathering children. And Paul was beaten three times with rods, which is different than being beaten with a whip, which he says three times he received 40 lashes, save one, just 39 lashes. If a guy received 40 lashes, that was a death sentence to show you how bad the beating was. And why has Paul done this? He has done this for the sake of his people. In Romans, not not Romans, but but in Acts, we see Paul's method is he goes every time to the synagogue first and and preaches the gospel to his brothers and sisters of, of the flesh, to the Jewish people, to the Jew first, he takes the message. And then when they reject him, only then does he go to the Gentiles. Paul has a a huge burden for his people. Now, why is Paul in such anguish? Why is he feeling this? It's because Paul knows that not all the Jews of his day will be saved. He knows the reality. He goes through chapter 9 telling us about this remnant, a remnant of grace, a remnant of election, a a part of a whole, 
Over and over Paul says it. And this causes Paul to have anguish. Because he knows the reality is, as he goes to these people, he knows they're not all going to believe. He's, they're not all going to believe. So he writes this letter. And then in verse number 6, the apostle, he says, but it's not because God's word has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Because here, God has his people in the world, the Jewish people. And the question is, why are all the Jews following the Messiah? If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the chosen one, how come everybody's not just following along? Why isn't God's word coming true? And the apostle says his word has not failed. It's impossible for God to fail. Luke 1.37 says, With God nothing shall be impossible. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11, the, 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 the prophet there says that God's word as it goes out through the world is like the rain. And as the rain touches a place, the rain has an effect. You know, if, if it rains a lot in California... A few things happen. The reservoirs fill up or the mountains slide. <laughs> the, it has an effect. And he says, so it is with my word. It will accomplish that which I sent it to do. God's word always accomplishes what he wants it to do. The problem with that is it doesn't always accomplish what we want it to do always accomplishes what God wants it to do. It never fails. It never fails. And somebody may say, well, if it never fails, why then are so many people unconverted? Why then is the world in darkness? Why then are things the way they are? Well, the only answer is, it must be a part of God's plan. It must be a part of God's design. God's word doesn't fail. It accomplishes what he wants it to do. Sometimes it looks to me like God doesn't want his word to do anything. God said to Jeremiah, I want you to go to the people of Israel in captivity and I want you to preach this message to them. But they will not believe. They will not turn. They will not hearken unto you. Now there is God who has a man, has a servant, has a preacher. Go and preach. But I want this word to accomplish nothing in that place. It's a mind blower, isn't it? God is sovereign and he exercises his sovereign choice and will in the world in which we live. Paul says it's not as though God's word has failed. Paul knows God's plan. God, Paul knows what God is doing. If you say, well, I just cannot, wrap, I can't wrap my brain around this. I think, you're, I think you're a knucklehead. I would direct you simply to go and look at the words of Jesus Christ himself in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. Where the disciples, they come to Jesus. And here's what they say. 
Why do you speak to them in a parable? In a paraphrase, why do you talk to them in sentences and stories in a ways they cannot understand? Here's what Jesus says. It is not, they are not meant to hear and understand. Lest they hear and believe. That sets you back. Puts you right back on your heels and you go, what in the? But that, 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 is, not, that is not a quotation from a theological, from a, that is not a quotation from a systematic theology. That's what Jesus says. And you and I are, for, are we, and so we have a choice. We can either say, that's what the Bible says, or not. <laughs> the word of God has not failed, Paul says. And now as he goes into verses 6 through 8, he talks about an Israel that's not the Israel we expect. There are two Israels here. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means... That it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's not the physical Jews. It's the spiritual Jews. It's these people who believe. These people who are born again. Romans 2, 28-29. It's these people who've received the circumcision of the heart. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says this, that those who are of faith, they are the children of Abraham. They are Abraham's seed. Ephesians 2:11 through22 says the same thing. But then most strikingly of all, because sometimes there's this argument that that's what Paul says. But if you were to take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter eight and read the last section of John chapter eight, here's what you find. Jesus says to the Jews who've come to him. The truth will set you free. And they say, we don't need to be set free. We're the children of Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham, I know you're Abraham's children. Then he says, but if you were, if you were really Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You would believe and follow me. So this is what Jesus says. This is not, this is Paul Reinforcing Christian doctrine, Christian teaching. There are these two Israels. There's an ethnic, physical Israel and a spiritual Israel, what I would call the true Israel. Verses 6 through 8. Israel, but not Israel. It's the children of the promise. Now the apostle continues on in verses 9 through 13. He goes on to say that God's people are chosen by him and that they are made willing by him, these people. For this is what the promise said. He says, these people of promise are are a special offspring, you might say. So, you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? God said to them at the very initial, at the outset, Genesis 12, you're going to have us, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then God makes them wait about 30 years 
to have Isaac. But in between Isaac being born, Abraham, Sarah, she realizes, you know, she's not having a baby. And I think probably the thing that triggers this move on her part is that she's going through that, the time of a, a lady's life when she's no longer able to bear children, and she knows it's over. And she must have felt frantic. So she asked Abraham, she said, Abraham, take my, my female servant, Hagar, and go into her and make love to her, and then I can have a child by Hagar. Abraham, himself probably feeling somewhat frantic, he, he agrees, he goes along. And just, just like that, Hagar gets pregnant. And Sarah, is she's, she's very upset about this. Because I don't think that Hagar was humble. I think she was kind of putting it on her, her boss lady. Look at me. <laughs> Look what I can do that you can't do. But that, that child was born. Abraham takes Ishmael out and he circumcises Ishmael. And then 13 years later, thereabouts, God comes to Abraham and Sarah and he says to them, I'm going to come at this time of the year and Sarah's going to conceive and bear a child. And what blows my mind every time I read it is after God says, you're going to have this promised child with Sarah, you know what Abraham says? Oh God, that Ishmael might walk before you. Abraham says, what about Ishmael? Abraham loves Ishmael. His number one son, his only son, his 13-year-old son, and when a son is 12 or 13, they really become useful. They can cut the grass. They can climb on the roof. They can back you in a fight. <laughs> and he said, and he knows, well, he's, you know, think of Abraham. Here he is. He has this son whom he loves very much, the apple of his eye, Ishmael. And God says, it's not going to be Ishmael, Abraham. And Abraham, with the same kind of anguish, maybe a slightly different level, as Paul, Abraham says, what about Ishmael? And what does the sovereign Lord of all creation say? It's not Ishmael. It's Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Ishmael was a son of natural production. But Isaac's conception was supernatural. Now, I don't mean to say that Isaac was like Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. I don't mean that. I mean that when Abraham and Sarah, when they came together as man and wife, that they received an enabling from God, a supernatural strengthening, so that she could carry the child, and they could conceive a child together. God doing this. And this is, this is typified all through the New Testament, that the new covenant Christians, that we too are the product, not of natural birth. We're the sons of God, not because we're born to a Christian family or into a Christian community, but we're the sons and daughters of God because we've been born by the Holy Spirit, being 
born again by the Holy Spirit's work. The apostle says God's people are chosen by him and they're made willing by him. He describes this. So look at verse 9. This is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. So that's that story of Isaac. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man. So you have, you have Abraham, right, who has Isaac. Then Isaac and Rebekah, they have two sons, Esau and Jacob. And so you have the sons of Isaac. But this matter of election, of choosing, doesn't even mean that all of Israel, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't even mean that all of Abraham's grandchildren are the chosen people. Though they were not yet born, verse 11, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's, a pur- that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who, who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, this is from Malachi, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So it's the same idea. It's not all these is not just because you're in Israel doesn't mean you're the true Israel. Just because you're a son of Abraham or a son of Isaac doesn't mean you're part of the, the, the covenant people, the special people. There's still this choosing that takes place. Even when there's two twins born. And the apostle goes to great lengths here to say that this wasn't done because of any kind of merit on their part. They hadn't done good or bad. This is the was, was designed ahead of time. Now, sometimes in order to soften the blow of verse 13, people will say that hated here just means loved less, that God loved them both. He just loved Esau less. Well, if I wrote you a note that said, I love you, what do you think that would mean? I mean, I love you. But if I wrote you a note that said, I hated you, would you say, oh, look at that. He loves me a little less. <laughs> I hate you. This, 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 this is not a game. And this, is, this was spoken by God to Malachi in the Old Testament. And Paul brings that again to say, it's Jacob I love. So this idea, this, this choosing, and this being made willing. In Psalm 65, verse number 4, The authorized version says it like this, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to come to you. In John chapter 6, verses 37 and 44, basically the sense of it is this, All that the Father gives to me comes to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. John 6, 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. No man can, the lack of ability. No man can. Now, this choice was made before creation. It was made without consideration of merit or their characters. Because if you look at the lives of Jacob and Esau, you have two guys who have very different character. Now, oftentimes, Esau was painted kind of as the, you know, the, the, great, the great outdoorsman, the man's man, the, the rugged dude, the Marlboro man. You know what I'm saying? You guys might not. You know who the Marlboro man was? You know? My childhood role model. <laughs> but that's Esau. And then you have Jacob, old sissy boy. That's kind of how it's presented. 
But Martin Luther, Martin, if you ever get a chance to read Martin Luther's commentary on Genesis, Martin Luther will blow your mind on the virtues of Jacob. He just pulls it right out of Scripture. And you're like, whew, Jacob was a lot better dude than we think. The New Testament says that Esau was an adulterous man. You don't, you don't, it doesn't say that about Jacob. Jacob was a man who, when he leaves his mother and father to go get a wife from Laban's household, he's traveling on his way, and guess who seeks him out? God seeks him out. God appears to Jacob. God comes to him. He comes and finds him. I would, I would venture to say that most of you here that when you became a Christian, God came and sought you out. He found you where you were. Now, God found me inside a church, sitting on the front pew. He found me. And I think about this every Sunday. As I went to church every Sunday as a kid, all the time, and I sat right there in church, and, I, and I've tried to remember things my dad said in church before I became a Christian. I don't remember very much of my dad's preaching because I turned it off. I was there, but I wasn't there. I just turned it off. I thought about hunting. I thought about fishing. I thought about girls. I thought about trucks. I thought about anything in the world except what was going on. I, never, I, I was there, but not there. I was just as lost on the front pew of Calvary Baptist Church in Florida, Illinois, as, as an Amazonian Indian in the Brazilian rainforest, just as lost, just as far away from God. But God sought me out, He found me, and He whispered into my ear those overtures of love. In the Song of Solomon, it talks about He has drawn us with cords of love. In the time of love, He comes and seeks for us. Jacob was chosen by God. The older will serve the younger. Jacob's going to be on top. Jacob is my chosen one. And God seeks out Jacob. And Jacob lives and serves God. After he believes the promise, God appears to him. Now verses 14 to 21. I'll have to do this in probably a few minutes. What if I don't like this? What if I don't like what I've just heard? What if what you've just heard has caused you to be upset? What, 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 what if what you just heard has caused you to have to go back to the drawing board and rethink about your own perspective of God? Now, best, best that I've tried here this morning, I've tried to show everything from the Scripture that I can. I think that what I said is true. I think that what I said is, is 100% true. Now, I could, I could err. I, I could make mistakes. I'm fallible. I'm just a dude, right? I could make mistakes. But I don't, I don't think that I've misunderstood this passage. So what if, we, what if, but what if I don't like it? What if it's not the kind of view of God that I, that I have grown up with or that I'm familiar with? What if, what, how should I feel? 
what, what should I do if I don't like it? The Apostle Paul, the people to whom he is writing, he anticipates this objection. In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? The question here is, if, if we're all just a part of God's plan, and we don't get to make a choice, how can God hold us accountable? How can God be upset with us for being sinners if he has left us to be sinners? How can God be, how can God be like he is? But notice the, the apostle's answer here. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who do you think you are? And notice the illustrations he uses. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Bob Pavlosky's been coming to church with us, and I've been bringing him. And Bob's been making some little clay, some little clay uh, hearts and butterflies for the, for the children's ministry. We're going we're to paint them on a particular night. But Bob's been molding these things. Somebody brings him a box of clay. He dumps it on the kitchen table. He presses it and molds it and squeezes it. Takes a little, uh, like a biscuit cutter kind of thing and makes what he wants out of it. And he's chosen to make some of that clay hearts. And some of that clay butterflies. What if after he stamped out one of those little bits of clay... It looked up at him and said, I want to be a heart. I don't want to be no stinking butterfly. Well, after he got up off the floor from a heart attack, he'd say, I'll show you who's boss. Make it into a dog. <laughs> or worse, a cat. <laughs> These are the examples Paul uses. He says, Shall the thing that is made say to who made it, Why have you done this to me? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who are we to reply against God? Now, you may have had this experience as a parent. When you have a child and you've laid down the law to them, and they, and they start giving you guff. I don't like this. I don't give a, I, I, you know, meh, meh, meh. And you have, to, you have to remind them who's in charge. Who payeth the bills? Whose cell phone plan they're on? Who that car really belongs to? You have to remind them. Put them in the their right position. Who are we to reply against God? You say, well, I don't like this. Friends, I understand. I feel this apostolic anguish in verses 1 to 5. And, I, and I, when I practiced this sermon, I thought I would talk, talk about how, in a personal way, well, I'm just going to do it, because I, I, I'm going to be done. No, I don't think I will. I don't, I don't quite know what to say. I don't, I don't want to say... With a subject like this, you, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can say things the wrong way and turn people off. And friends, I'm just trying to show you what God's Word says about this. And, and I don't want to be snappy or glib or, or lighthearted. 
about it or, you know, like it doesn't matter. So the reality of, of this whole thing is the apostle, when he says of one lump of humanity, some for honor, some for dishonor. Then you have the, the, the kind of the hypothetical, what if God was willing to make vessels fitted for destruction and then bear with them through much long suffering? So this means that as a father of five children, It means that I cannot be, it could be that not all of my children are going to be saved. Or that they even could be saved. That, that's, that's an implication of this passage. So I'm preaching to you something that I believe is true. But really strikes it in my very heart. And I have to say, Lord, I have to remember who am I to reply against God? Who am I? This, this is this, this is this is an, you know this is the real this is this is the reality of of Christian teaching, of Christian doctrine. There are things in the Bible that just can, you can walk out here walking on air. Then there are other things that really set you back and cause you to reassess your perspective and view of God and what God's Word says. So what should I do? What are the responses to this? Well, there are, are three responses to this. The first response to this kind of, to this passage, is that we should all leave here humbled. Humbled. How is it that you got to be born in the United States of America, where the gospel is preached on every street corner almost, where the radio is filled with Christian teaching? where there are gospel tracts, where there are Bibles everywhere, where where there's unbridled religious freedom. How is it that you got to be born here and know the truth, believe the truth, and love the truth? And then the Amazonian rainforest, there are people who have lived and died for centuries who have never heard the name of Jesus. And all they've ever done is worshiped idols. How is it that, that you got to be here? How is it that you got to be born here and not born in Iran? Where your father held you as a baby and spoke into your ear. Spoke into your ear. Allah has no son. No son of God. To speak into your ear, Allah Akbar. And make you a Muslim from your birth. How is it you got how is it you got so lucky? Well, it's just God's the way God has arranged it. It should humble us. Humble us. I applied for a job one time, 
and I thought I got it on the merits. But I really got it later, I found out, because I was dating the guy's daughter. (laughs) That was kind of humbling. It should humble us. Who are we? Humble us. Number two, it should move us to truer and purer worship of God. To worship him for who he is. And recognizing he is the ruler. He is the king. That he reigns. It should make us see him in a a better way. Number three. What should we do then about the people around us who are not Christians? What should we do about the lost, the unsaved all around us? Well, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that we should preach the gospel to everyone. We should evangelize. We should evangelize everyone we can. Because God's word, when delivered to the right heart, the right person, they'll be saved. Doesn't mean they'll be saved today, but they will be saved. Evangelize. God's word will accomplish what it's meant to accomplish. It will. And God has, in, God, in God's purposes, God has arranged it so that you and I, who are his people, who are Christians, we're the ones supposed to take the gospel to the whole world, to our friends and loved ones, to evangelize, to tell people the good news. Man, nobody's going to get saved if the gospel's not preached to everybody. This is the way it works. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel must be preached. So this, with this bigger view of God, it should give us greater confidence in the gospel. To speak the truth. You don't have to speak it very well. Tell people the old, old story of Jesus and his own of his life and death and resurrection. Evangelize and trust God together in his people through his gospel. Let's let's pray together. Father, as we take in your text, your text of scripture in hand, Lord, I, I hope that I've been able to do this passage justice. Not just justice, but I've been able to present it clearly and the best I can. And I pray, Lord, that you let these words ring in our ears, your words. We pray these things in Christ's holy and glorious name. Amen.